welcome to another edition of Mr. Nice Guy, everybody. I'm Ben Slowey. And joining me today, I've got a um, filmmaker and photographer uh, who currently lives in Chicago. Um, he is uh, especially known for directing and producing the documentary, uh, The Blood is on the Doorstep. Looking forward to uh, getting to know him a little better and his work, passions, artistry, and why he does what he does. Eric Young, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well, as well as you can be during this weird time. Um, but yeah, hanging in there, you know, summer was real slow and it was kind of a nice time to kind of step back from the rat race a little bit and kind of take stock of, of yourself and uh, what's important and what you want to focus on going forward. You know, I think uh, at times of like this, you know, it kind of makes you really reevaluate your priorities. So I'm yeah. um, going through that, but at a certain point, you know, I needed to make some money again. So it was nice that things started to pick back up a little bit, but uh, you know, I'm, I feel very fortunate. Um, nobody um, that I know directly really has been too affected by uh, this pandemic so uh, yeah so everyone stayed pretty healthy for the most part good yeah um yeah totally i wholeheartedly agree and have been in sort of the same personal introspection um this year has obviously been um not the year we uh uh were prepared for um everyone thought 2020 was going to be like you know, this year that Milwaukee pops off in so many ways, but, um, how it's, started you, and how it's going. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've, uh, definitely been coming a lot more into like listening to myself and, uh, not remaining attached to any thing that isn't worth keeping around anymore. Like negative energy wise, like that includes people, that includes situations, that includes like, you know, doing, just doing more things to be responsible for myself. And uh, I also, you know, took a long time away from doing the show uh, for months this year, but uh, the last couple months, uh, picking it back up again over Zoom, um, people have a lot to say right now. And uh, that's why, you know, I'm, happy to uh, give the platform to those that need it. So, um, Eric, what'd you do today? Oh, uh, you know, I went to lunch with a friend and then I procrastinated a lot for this uh, shoot I have coming up that yes. I'm kind of producing and like a commercial thing, which, you know, it's not my favorite kind of stuff, but it, you know, so I've been uh, preparing for that, you know, and I sent out a bunch of money and back taxes today. So that was fun. Um, so good times, good times. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Good. Yeah. How about you? How was your day? Um, uh, let's see. Um, I did some uh, writing. I write for uh, Breaking and Entering, the music blog. Um, so I uh, published a couple things on our site this morning. Um, people are still dropping music like crazy right now. Um, and uh, I was up really late last night. Um, this past week has been kind of rough. Um, I'm in an organizing group and uh, one of our members got arrested in Wauwatosa. Mm -hmm. So we finally 
we were just trying to work through like the whole like bail process and um we finally luckily got them home today um but it was just uh just a lot to take in at once um so i'm i'm relieved that uh that's done but today um yeah i've just been kind of tired so drinking a lot of coffee i just woke up from a nap not too long ago so bear with me still waking up just a bit (laughs) um but uh yeah got a couple episodes tonight so nice yeah um so eric what we talk about on mr nice guy we talk love and fear passion and creativity and um yeah, man, uh, we've been connected for a little while now. Um, I've been, I've seen like your work, and um, your work has uh, made us to some pretty uh, high-profile places, and that is very exciting. But um, and I'm very excited to talk about the blood is at the doorstep, as well as what you've been working on this year. Um, but before we do that, so reading a little, doing a little research on you. Um, so you're from California originally, right? Correct. When you were a kid, um, did you think you would be like a filmmaker or anything like that? What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, uh, you know, I think as a kid, I actually, my, my main goal growing up was really to be like a professional athlete, you know, cause like in, I think uh, starting like seventh grade, like all I did was play basketball. Like I carried a basketball all through high school, like to school and I'd play on my tutorial and my lunch break. You were one and of then, those kids. <laughs> those yeah, dribbling down the sidewalk. I think that's one problem I've had is I've always been like obsessive towards what I'm trying to do, you know? So it was like when I was basketball, that's all that's all I was doing. Then one day I was just like, fuck basketball. And then I started playing hockey. And then uh, it was all hockey for a while. And then, you know, uh, but with photo and video and all that stuff has always kind of been there as well. Like I was doing photo and video as far back as like fifth and sixth grade, but it, it was not something I ever considered as like a career path. I literally didn't know that you can make a living like doing photo or video. There's nobody in my sphere of influence that made a living in a creative field. So like, I just thought I had to get an office desk job like my parents or something like that, you know? So I always did that stuff as a hobby and had fun, but I never even remotely considered entertaining that as a career. Um, I thought literally only rich people did it or starving artists. And like, I didn't want to be a starving artist and I wasn't a rich person. So I was like, oh, I guess I just got to be a business major, you know? Um, So I kind of struggled with that uh, and growing comfortable with kind of following that path all through college. Like I transferred colleges four different times. It took me six years to graduate. So I, I, I went to UC Santa Barbara my freshman year, and then I was majoring in business. And then o- over the summer, I got a internship where my mom worked at like some corporate business place. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm gonna kill myself if I have to sit in a cubicle 40 plus hours a week. Um, and so like, I was like, fuck that. And then I left UCSB and actually came home and went to a community college. Um, and that was a great opportunity because I, I wasn't taking on any debt really. And I got to explore a wide range of classes. So I was taking a ton of classes that didn't have anything to do with, uh, you know, getting a degree or getting my uh, GE. It was just like me exploring what I wanted to try. Um, and I eventually kind of fell into graphic design because I felt like it was a good compromise of like business and 
the art I was trying to do and graphic design was like the business of art. So it's kind of like having it both ways and it felt safe to me. Um, and I ended up graduating from San Diego State uh, where, I, where I met a girl in San Diego and uh, she ended up moving to Milwaukee to pursue her PhD at UW-Milwaukee. So when I graduated from San Diego State, um, a year later, I moved to Milwaukee. Um, and that relationship ended pretty much as soon as I got to Milwaukee, maybe lasted a couple months. Um, but, you know, Milwaukee was like this exotic new place to me. I was born and raised in California and lived all over California. Um, and so I was like, I don't really want to go home with my tail between my legs feeling sorry for myself. So I'm going to stick it out. And I got a job at Pabst Riverside Turner as a graphic designer and, a, and doing web design. I was like, this is a dope job for my first job in, uh, out of college. Like, this is awesome. Uh, and then I realized after a couple of years being there, I was never going to pay back my student loans. Like it was a cool job, didn't pay a whole lot. And I was um, working 60 plus hours a week, you know, sitting in a cubicle, exactly what I was trying not to do. Um, and I just, on the weekends, I started like freelancing and uh, assisting with other photographers in town. Cause I was kind of like dabbling in it. it was, in Milwaukee was really the first time I was associated with creatives that were making a living doing that. Um, and I remember assisting some photographers in town and going to their house and they had a whole studio and like they lived in a dope spot and I was helping them load gear out for a shoot. And I was like, yo, you could live like this and do a creative field. Like that's crazy, you know? So it's like, I kind of quit my job on a whim cause I just felt like I was paying 325 bucks in rent at the time. I was living with like a random couple off Craigslist. And so I was like, man, 325 bucks. I really only need to come up with like a thousand dollars a month to pay my minimum expenses. And so like, I just kind of quit my job on a whim because I knew if I waited for everything to be perfect, like I would never quit my job. And, and I know I didn't want to be doing this in five years. Uh, and so I was like, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to force myself to figure this out. And, you know, I was doing a lot of crap I didn't want to do, like photographing weddings. And I took some odd, weird jobs where I was like um, reshelving products at like Walmart and different grocery stores for 10 bucks an hour. So like, I think my first year of freelance, I made $10,000. Like, um, so I was making much less than I was at Pabst. And I was like, fuck. But, you know, I was like, I felt more on the path to what I was trying to be doing, you know? So, um, so I definitely had to take a step back to take a couple steps forward, but yeah, man, it's like after probably freelancing, like for three, four years, I was making more than I was and like I was getting better opportunities. And I realized even though I was doing what I wanted to do, freelance photo and video, like I still had to be mindful of what kind of work I was doing. Cause I, the more weddings I photographed, the more wedding jobs I got. And even though that was what was keeping me afloat at a certain point, I was like, well, I got to cut out the wedding shit if I don't want to do the weddings because I'm never going to do the work I want to do if I keep taking on that work because I'm getting known as the guy that's doing weddings, you know? So it's like, even though you're within the general thing, you got to keep refining the funnel a little bit. And uh, so I cut out the wedding stuff and then more and more started getting in the path that I wanted to be doing, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, th that path is always being readjusted as you get older and your interests change. And uh, so you get, 
you always got to recalibrate. And for me, like that week between Christmas and New Year's is kind of my time to like totally check out from society and be in my own headspace and like really evaluate the year before that I just had and what things worked, what things didn't, and like really meticulous like um, goals for the new year type thing and plans and how I'm going to do it. So I kind of like shut down between like Christmas and the first of the year, you know, it's a really nice time yeah. to like kind of recalibrate. That is a good, that's a good like uh, period to choose to recalibrate. That's probably the best week to do it. I yeah. would agree. Nobody expects uh, anything from you. So. Right. Exactly. Um, what, uh, what, what year did you arrive in Milwaukee? Um, it was during another economic crisis, 2008. Oh, yeah, yeah, so I moved there. Um, I graduated college in May 2008, and I moved to Milwaukee on July 4th, 2008. I dropped my bags and went straight to Summerfest. I saw the Roots that night at cool. Summerfest, and then they played at uh, they played a DJ set at um, shit. What's the name of that club? It's it's like a restaurant now, right there in Third Ward. Anyways um before your time you're a young yeah. guy <laughs> but i uh, yeah anyways yeah that's dope um you had to get used to the cold i imagine coming over here from the coast of california well yeah i mean i lived in lake tahoe for a year so but yeah still dude yeah it wasn't like six months of cold like it snows here for a couple months and then it's just cold for no reason for like another four months yeah and uh it's like pointlessly cold here <laughs> and and i was spoiled like living in california like it when it's snowing like you could snowboard uh and it's great and it's dope here you know there's like some little bunny hills you could snowboard like if you drive an hour but it's like it's not the same you know so yeah it took some getting used to for sure but it was cool like i played hockey so it was really interesting to to be able to just go play pickup games of pond hockey like I would basketball in California you know it's like yeah like that was so cool to have like an outdoor physical activity and like literally skating on a frozen pond it was like a really cool way to feel in tune with nature a little bit um while being aggressive and pushing people around you know it was, it was fun so. totally yeah so um what part of Milwaukee did you uh, like were you on the east side when you lived here when I first moved to Milwaukee, I was like um, on the border of like Shorewood in Milwaukee. I was like right off uh, Capitol Drive. I just, uh, I was on Capitol and like Murray, I want to say, something oh, like yeah. that. Sure. So um, that was my very first apartment. And then I lived on Stoll on the east side. Then I lived right by um, uh, Cops Full Belly Deli um on the east side i lived there that was like after my breakup i got some dingy one bedroom apartment by myself and had no furniture i was just like sad for six months drinking beer um yep. good times and then uh and then that's when i uh i found that uh one um just some random craigslist roommates and that was also on the east side over by uwm um and i I was kind of broke at the time because I was like quit my job and I was like trying to look for some hustles 
So like, I remember I signed up for some classes at UWM so that I could get a student ID card. Uh, Cause with the student ID card, you get a free bus pass. So I signed up for the classes registered and then dropped the classes that first week and I got my money back, but I had the ID and I got the free bus pass. And then yeah. I was able to use the UWM craft center all semester. And so I was like using the, the photo lab all the time, but That's then they dope. just, they just recognized me after a while and they stopped asking me for my ID like the next semester. So I was just like in there for like a year. Damn, that's that's pretty crafty, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, then I then that kind of led me to because they had a a thing on the wall in there of like they were like renting a space uh, in Walker's Point. It was like an old storefront studio, and uh, I had some friends at the time. We were all broke as shit. Like there was like five of us splitting um, a place like a, a storefront for four ninety five a month, and that was like like that was hard for us to split like $500 five different ways. So it was a hundred dollars each, but we were broke, dude. And it's like, so we split it five ways and the office didn't really work out, but the lease was in my name. So I kind of booted the remaining members and then lived in this storefront in in uh, Walker's point on, on ninth and national for like, um, six seven years and uh i would have stayed there man it was dirt cheap man it's 4.95 and it was dope i would have never moved but then i started dating someone and like we moved in together and it was like not really a good place i was on the road a lot so it wasn't a good place to, like leave a significant other by themselves um yeah but uh it was a dope i love that spot um oh yeah. yeah i'm uh i'm a river west boy um, I lived on the east side for four years because um, I went to UWM, but now I live in River West for, I've been here for like a year and a half, and it's definitely like, I feel like pretty um, uh, secure here, like it's a lot of people that are interested in a lot of local music and local art and DIY stuff, which is a great community to be a part of. Um, <clears throat> so. Um, so once you kind of like continued doing, um, uh, as you got more in, into like the gig economy and stuff, like uh, what were some uh, more like uh, film projects you eventually, after like the wedding stuff was over, how did you continue building? Well, I think like I, I started working, I still did a lot of stuff for Pabst Riverside Turner as a freelancer. So I was doing photo and video, but you know, it wasn't paying a whole lot and then i started doing stuff with like x fabula storytelling in yeah. milwaukee they used to be was, my sponsor actually oh cool yeah they were great and there was really uh you know that wasn't like necessarily paying the bills but it was really fun to kind of connect and kind of be in that art space with a lot of people doing storytelling um and then i th i think it was them yeah they connected to me to john michael core art center up in sheboygan and they were a really good client for a while. So I was driving up to Sheboygan a bunch and doing video work for them. And it was like, I was literally doing everything, producing. I was going up there by myself. I was doing the lighting, the audio, the directing, the producing, editing. And uh, I was, in hindsight, I was way undercharging. But, um, but to me, it like felt like I was making some real money finally. And, um, and so I started doing that. Then I got on a show called Wisconsin Foodie on like regional PBS. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. And I, I met, you know, Arthur Ersink, the uh, creator of that and started working with him a lot. 
and uh, started working with this guy, Spencer Chumbly, who's originally from Milwaukee. And while we were working together, he kind of, uh, he took a job with Vice um, and moved to Brooklyn. So he got a staff producing um, DP cinematographer job with them. Uh, and then when he started producing stories, he kind of brought me on as a freelancer to start working with Vice a lot. And that's kind of what started a lot of um, work for me is getting on with Vice because um, the, the New York journalism documentary world is really small. And so once I got tapped into that, my name started getting passed around um, and it's really kept me busy for the last four years. And like, I'm on the road quite a bit now, which used to be cool and now I'm 37 and it's not as cool being on the road all the time you know it's like exhausting and my back hurts and uh, um, so it I feel very thankful for what I'm doing but I, I would like to get a healthier ratio of travel to like local work um, but no, that's kind of what got me started was uh, uh, Spencer hired me on a um, his first job that he did for Vice uh, this first story that he produced was kind of shining a light on the Corey Stingley case in Milwaukee. Um, so being from Milwaukee, he really wanted to use, you know, his privilege and platform advice to kind of like shed light on the injustices that were happening back in Milwaukee, because Milwaukee kind of gets skipped over in the national headlines a lot. Um, and, and so like he brought me on to, to film that and, um, and that really working on that project um, and telling Corey's story was really important to me because it, it kind of empowered me to be like, okay, my skill set is storytelling and visual storytelling. Like, how can I use the, my skill set that I have and platform to be able to like align with my values and shed light on the things that I care about? Because for a long time, you know, I care about things and I have strong opinions about things, but I didn't know what else to do with that. You know, uh, like I would share posts on Twitter or Facebook that were like, blah, 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 you know, but I was just, I just felt like I was in the echo chamber and everybody that followed me already felt the same way. And I just felt like I, there's gotta be something I could do more and I didn't know what to do. And uh, I guess so, yeah, when the Dontre Hamilton case happened, you know, I was kind of like coming off that feeling. I was like, someone's got to tell this story, you know? And it was like months. I didn't really start on that project till maybe three or four months after he was killed. And uh, it didn't seem like anybody was telling that story. And it didn't seem, it wasn't getting any national coverage. And what I was seeing on broadcast news at night was like, they're soundbiting the family and there's like no nuance to the storytelling. And, you know, being um, a local news station, official source of information was the police department and the mayor's office. So oftentimes there's an imbalance in power in the reporting where, um, you know, the news stations have to maintain these good relationships with these, um, these uh, sources Institute. of information. Yeah, these the institutions. institutions. Yeah. And I felt like they were always able to set the narrative uh, before the family got a chance to. And um, for me, like, you know, I'm a white guy telling this story about, you know, black trauma and this black family. Um, and that's not really, you know, I was out there because I was really trying to bear witness and trying to understand what was happening. And I wasn't necessarily trying to make a documentary, but the more I went out there, the more I realized like this needed to be covered. 
And because I just felt like what was happening in Milwaukee was going to be important in the history of Milwaukee, you know, like if this isn't like documented, like people are going to forget. And what the Hamilton family was doing, like the more time I spent with them, um, I was like, this is incredible, like what they're able to accomplish. And throughout most of that summer after Dontre was killed, like there weren't many people at the protest at all. The Hamilton family was marching with maybe 10, 15 people all summer long. So I was like, their dedication um, and, and the things that people were saying about them online was disgusting. And for me, it was personal because, you know, Dontre had paranoid schizophrenia, was in the park and a lot of people said he was homeless and that the family didn't care about Dontre and just wanted a, a payout. And for me, it's like, it didn't matter if Dontre was homeless or not. Like I have a cousin that I grew up with in Sonoma, California, who was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He didn't really show signs till he's in his twenties. And he's, he was literally homeless in my hometown at the, at the time of this all going on. So for me, I was just like, a lot of people don't have no, no idea what the fuck they're talking about and how yeah. difficult uh, mental illness. Cause like, my family, you know, has some resources and even then um, they tried to help my cousin, but you know, um, you know, he's an adult and he can make his own decisions. And he just felt like when he's on medication, like he was like, he didn't feel like himself, you know? And it was like, so it was really, it's really tough. And I think part of me documenting that was um, trying to understand you know, my own family and kind of work through things. And so for me, I was just like, I felt like if this were to happen to my family, my family would probably get the benefit of the doubt. And what I was seeing people say about this family was like disgusting and, and they don't know them. Like I've come learn, learn to know them, you know, and if people could see this family, like, I don't think they would have the same opinion uh, that they're spouting online. So I think part of me naively made, want to document this not only because it's important historically for Milwaukee but also like you know trying to put someone else in someone else's shoes and over time after screening the film I realized that the people that are seeking to watch this film you're probably preaching to the choir because I don't think like anybody that feels a different way about these incidences is really coming out and seeking out this movie to watch it yeah. But, you know, that's okay. You know, I think rallying the base and uh, giving people um, kind of, you know, as, as heartbreaking as the story is, I think it is really inspiring to see what the Hamilton family uh, was able to accomplish uh, and just their drive and, and, and watching that, not the, the trauma, but like the healing process. So I think that was like helpful uh, for, for people, uh, I hope, you know, and it's... Um, yeah, that was a big story where the whole like mental illness argument was so pervasive of like, oh, like this guy was, he was like, you know, he was messed up in the head and like, you know, the, the officer felt threatened. But that comes from like, that's just like such a, that not only like, you know, avoids accountability for the officer, but it also like, um, you know, that's also just, you know, a further like stigmatization of mental health and mental illness and those that suffer from something like paranoid schizophrenia. Right. And in like the first couple officers that came, you know, determined he was doing nothing wrong and it wasn't bothering anybody, you know? So it's like this guy obviously had some kind of chip on his shoulder where he felt like he needed a, 
handle the situation, you know? And, it, and it's, the film doesn't go into it too much, um, and it probably should have, but, um, you know, just really like the, that Starbucks employee repeatedly calling the police on Dantre, even though he's just laying there, you know? So it's just like fear of, you know, a black person in their vicinity where they felt like uncomfortable or threatened, you know, to the point where they needed to call, you know, the law enforcement to remove this man from the park, which is, um, which is really sad. You know, it's like, there's so many times I spent in Red Arrow Park after that and you'd see, you know, people sleeping in the park and, you know, it's just like, I wonder if they know what happened here, you know, it's like. Right. Yeah, we've like we've um, done a lot of uh, like a lot some of the marches that I've been that I've partaken in or, you know, just marches that happen downtown Milwaukee. They often meet right in that like that's where they meet is Red Arrow Park. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's become like, kind of an epicenter for. Um, yeah, it's become so centralized. Yeah, it, it, uh, I've been I've been boycotting uh, Starbucks ever since then. And it's not necessarily because of that, but really because of how Starbucks, the corporation treated the Hamilton family. Like when, after all that happened, Howard Schultz, then CEO of Starbucks came to Milwaukee to meet with the Hamilton family and discuss the, uh, what happened. And they wanted to do some kind of Black Lives Matter initiative with them. Cause this is the summer of Michael Brown and Eric Garner as well, that, that 2014. Um, and so they wanted to get ahead of some of this and, you know, make a Black Lives Matter thing because I think they were worried that Dontre's case might get some more attention after, after Michael Brown. Um, so Howard Schultz came to Milwaukee and the Hamilton family is basically like, look, you know, we don't want to help you sell $5 cups of, cups of coffee to black people. You know, we're not interested in whatever you're trying to do, you know. And I think they were kind of offended and uh, Nate Hamilton, Dantra's brother, went on national CNN like a couple of weeks later for an interview and he was talking about Starbucks role and his brother's death. And uh, Howard Schultz's Starbucks' lawyers sent them like a cease and desist, like threatening to sue them if they keep talking about Starbucks. Um, and so like after that, I was just like, fuck Starbucks, man. I, yeah. I had Starbucks in six years and it's hard being on the road all the time and traveling because I'm with crews. And sometimes you're in weird places where all there is a Starbucks. So it's like, I miss many a breakfast just to like, not that my, you know, single boycott is doing anything to affect their bottom line, but it's like, I can't in good conscience like support a company that claims to believe in Black Lives Matter yet threatens the victim. Right. Yeah, it's, it, at that point, you know, it's, that becomes Black Lives marketing, you right, know, right, which right. totally like, I try to avoid corporations whenever i can honestly at this point for so many more reasons right you know based on like worker exploit exploitation for example but that's for another day right um so you're uh so blood at the doorstep got screen it got showed at southwest southwest in 2017 correct yeah, yeah. yeah. i'd yeah. love to hear about that experience yeah that was its first premiere that was where it premiered so that was a super stressful time like because I was trying to get the film done and I don't think it was ready but it's it was we, it, you, we just felt like 
the timeliness of that discussion, uh, it was important to get the film out a little sooner. Uh, and we, we applied to that film, you know, we applied to that film festival maybe four or five months before it actually happened. So like we applied with a very rough cut and then it got in kind of at the last minute, like we heard in late January that it would be in and premiering in the middle of March. So we had like a month and a half to finish the film and we were not close to being finished. So we had like a two hour cut still at that point and we got it down to an hour and 38 minutes uh, prior to the festival. But, you know, the film now is at an hour and 30 minutes, but, you know, it still wasn't right. And I was like, not many people saw the film prior to that. And I remember like the most stressful screening we ever did was for the Hamilton family. Like we didn't want to show the Hamilton family until those like in the best shape it can be but we had to show it to them before South by Southwest, but we were running out of time. Like we were pulling all nighters for like weeks on end, trying to get this film done. There was one stretch. I stayed up 36 hours in a row working with my editor, trying to get it done. I was sleeping at their office all the time, but we, so we got, we got to a good enough place where we could send it to South by. And so a couple of nights before we went to South by, you know, the Hamilton family was going to be going with us down there. And so we called him into the office and we showed him the film. And that was like so stressful. Cause I was like, what if they don't like the film? Like, what the fuck are we going to, we can't, we can't still go to South by Southwest if they don't feel comfortable with the film, you know? And we didn't have time to change anything. So they, if they did have any changes, like we couldn't really address it. We, I don't know. We just had to pull out or something. Uh, and I remember screening that and I was like so nervous, like I couldn't make eye contact. Like I was kind of like rambling, you know, cause I was like, you know, this is like why I was following them for the last three years, you know? And I remember it was just like, it was, they were just quiet. And then I was like, fuck. And the film kind of starts with um, the Sherman Park stuff. And you know, the family, the Hamilton family was very much like, you know, trying to keep, um, keep the peace you know and they were very direct protesting um, things didn't really get out of hand and then the film kind of opens with Sherman Park and I think they were a little you know they didn't know uh, what precedes that they just know right on the screen right off the bat it's Sherman Park and things are getting burnt up and shit like that and so they're like hey man we had nothing to do with this and I was like oh just just watch this watch you know and then you know they were pretty quiet through the film and then they were laughing at some points and uh it got to the end and uh, Maria and Damien were just like, oh my God, like, I love it. Like, this is incredible, you know? But Nate, Nate is kind of like the main focus in the film. And he was really quiet and he's normally like, you know, he's a talkative dude, he likes to joke, um, but he was like really quiet. And he just said, there's a lot in there. And I was like, okay, you know, what, what does that mean? That, that's all he had to say. He's like, yeah, man, he's like, uh, and he's real quiet again for a while. And he's just like, you know, watching this, I just felt like there's so much more that we could have done. And it kind of broke my heart, man, because it's like, dude, this guy was doing everything all the time for years. Like he was working full time. He's going to school full time. Then he's doing all this protesting at night. You know, he had a kid during this time. And it was just like, like he was doing all the things and he's still, like I, we made this film hoping it would kind of motivate people to take action in whatever they believed in, you know, and just showing how much you can accomplish as individuals. Um, 
despite what you think is possible. And, uh, you know, I never thought him watching his own story would motivate him that he should have and could have done more. Um, you know, and I think there are some things that, um, you know, I think for the most part, like he felt a little vulnerable, you know, cause we showed him at all times through going through a lot of things and some things that were in there, you know, it wasn't always in the best of light, you know, um, but it was like true to what happened. Um, but having said that, you know, we kept working on the film and, and the editing and, uh, you know, the premiere was super stressful because like I, st it still isn't what wasn't in a place that I wanted it to be. Um, and it just, it went from being a very private thing with just a couple people working on it to within a couple days, like having national reviews of the film and being premiered at a big film festival. So it's like, you know, it's like letting go of, you know, this passion project. And I, you know, I, I felt like I could, could still be working on it now, you know, and it's just like, it was hard to let go of it. Um, but we, we worked on it for another, like we hadn't even scored the film yet. Like we had a temp score in there at that time. So we worked uh, and scored it over the summer and we actually filmed more over the summer and re-edited it. And it honestly didn't get its final form until uh, the Milwaukee Film Festival. So that felt good as like in its final completed form, it, it played for the home crowd at the Milwaukee Film Festival in uh, 2017. And that was like, by far like um the best screening and it's always hard to say like the best screening when you're dealing with a film like this but like for us like bringing it home and like everybody that i loved in the world the most was there my parents were there you know my my girl at the time was there the hamilton family was there like everybody that i cared about most was there uh, you know, it's like a packed house at the Oriental. It was like 1,200 people. You know, the Congresswoman was there. It was like, there, you know, there was just so much love for the Hamilton family. And I think for the city of Milwaukee, it's like this was the main story in Milwaukee for, for years. Um, and, you know, for the most part, the city and the police department got to control the narrative. And I think this was the first time a lot of people were exposed to, like, the full story of what happened for the mo as much as you can in an hour and a half um, from kind of a different perspective than a lot of people saw and got to see behind the curtains. So I think it, for the city of Milwaukee, it was um, cathartic in some ways for like a lot of people. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. yeah, thank you for sharing all that, Eric. Um, so um, with this year, um, everything that's transpired in 2020 with the continued um, police brutality and, uh, you know, just racist violence against black and brown folks, you know, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, um, Jacob Blake. How does every, how does all of what's happened recently made you reflect back on the documentary um, at the time and like how do you feel like how do you look at it now well you know I'm I'm not black uh, but you know with the Hamilton family like I spent a lot of time with them and you know they're like liter literal family to me and being so close to this case for such a long time 
it's like whenever these incidents come up, you know, it's a little bit like triggering. Um, and it's like kind of numbing, you know, I remember uh, after George Floyd, you know, I moved to, you know, I've, I've been in Chicago for a little over a year now, but I'm not really tied in like I was in Milwaukee. Like I knew everybody in Milwaukee and I, I, I felt like I was tied in. And so when, when George Floyd happened, I was down here, I just felt like I didn't know what to do. Like I felt like I was just like, you know, felt really numb and like slept for like a week, you know? Um, and so like, I ended up just going back up to Milwaukee a bunch to like march with the Hamilton family. Cause it's like, I didn't really know what else to do. And like, you know, they were kind of, the Hamilton family really is and was like my Midwest family. Cause all my family was on the coast. Um, so whenever I'm back in Milwaukee, like, you know, I, I, I got a key to Maria's house for where, you know, I have a place to stay when I'm up in Milwaukee. So it's like, they're really the closest thing I have to family in the Midwest. So like, I, I would go up there and march with them and stuff like that. But yeah, man, it's, it's tough. And, you know, I was in, um, I was in Kenosha for two weeks after Jacob Blake, you know, I was there covering that for the New York times. And I was just in Louisville for New York times after the Brianna Taylor decision. And so just being in the middle of that, it, it's hard, man. Cause it's like in Milwaukee, I was out there and I was, um, you know, knew everybody when I'm in Kenosha and Louisville, like, I'm just like another white dude with a camera that's not to be trusted, trusted and probably rightfully so, you know, and it's like, I'm a member of the media now. And it's like, you know, police don't like you and uh you know protesters don't like you you know so it's like it's tough and i don't really have when i'm working on assignment like that um i'm not making a lot of the editorial decisions you know so it's like you know i just you know i'm i miss uh having the opportunity to um be in control of the narrative a little bit you know um and and kind of I love elevating voices, but, um, so yeah, it was, it was, it's tough being in the midst of that because I've seen it play out before. And I remember being there on the day just recently of Breonna Taylor and the activists and people out in the park were like hopeful, uh, the, the decision that was going to come down. And it's like, I've seen this play out so many times that I'm just, you know, it's kind of hard to sit there next to someone that's like legitimately hopeful that, there's going to be some kind of charging decision when you know, like, dude, like, no, this is going to be bad, you know? Um, and it's tough being out there, man. Cause it's like, it's just, uh, yeah. Kenosha was, was intense, man. And um, yeah, I was there the night before Kyle Rittenhouse murdered two people. Um, were you? Yeah, I was out there that, I was out there that night too. Yeah, I was out there that whole week. So, yeah. yeah um, were you like, um, were you present for when like that violence went down? Like the night Kyle Rittenhouse like did what he did. Were you like present for that? I was. I was there, but I. I had. I had left uh, the march. You know, after the police kind of pushed everybody out of the square. Um, at that point, um, people started like going down the street again. And at that point we kind of peeled off and we 
filed our footage. So I heard the gunshots. I was about a block away uh, filing from uh, the hotel. And I remember um, I was with another reporter at the time and it was like, pop, pop. And uh, she was just like, was that fireworks? I was like, nah, you know, that's definitely gunshots. And then, you know, she was going through Twitter and, uh, you know, she's kind of recounting live, but it was, that was like a block away, but I was not out there anymore at that time. I was uploading footage. Sure. Yeah. yeah that, yeah, that week definitely like shook myself up, um, with all of just the militant tactics. The one night I was present, but, um, yeah, I mean, I saw a bunch of those militia dudes out there, man. Like both nights uh, earlier in the day, uh, the dude from like the Kenosha, the guy who started the Kenosha Guard Facebook page, he was uh, the New York Times actually interviewed him. Then an article that came out today, it looked like I haven't read it yet, but uh, he was an ex uh, alderman in Kenosha and he came out there with a big ass rifle thing and gun on his hip and he came out there to like try and talk with protesters, you know, and they're just having like some argument, kind of like civilized argument thing with protesters, kind of like, oh, you know, I don't know. But he was all strapped up. Um, but he started the Kenosha Guard and he's the one who kind of got all these people out there, you know, so it was really, uh, you know, that was before all that shit went down, but seeing him that night and then the night before, I saw a bunch of dudes, you know, I saw this in Milwaukee too, where there's like a bunch of these like weird white dudes who are like kind of libertarian and it's like, Boogaloos. yeah, I mean, you, but you don't know where they stand. Cause they're like, Oh yeah. What happened to Jacob Blake or whatever's fucked up and like, shouldn't happen. There's these guys in Brianna down in Louisville too. And they would say like, yeah, these no knock raids are bullshit and blah, blah, blah. Like, but we're also going to like shoot people if they fuck with this building, you know, it's like they're trying to play it both ways and it's like really weird and confusing. And then, um, but it was even more confusing down there because like some of these guys that were like militia were also like dressing up as like Wisconsin national guard when they obviously weren't because they were like walking in the middle of everybody and doing some of the chants with the protesters. But this guy was in fatigues and had like, like a, a shittily sewn on like Wisconsin flag on it. So it's like, he was trying to like appear to be Wisconsin national guard. It was like, which is like a war crime, like pretending, you know, I don't know, but it was just like, it was, it was weird. Yeah. Strange. But there's yeah. a bunch of those dudes down in Louisville too. Um, they were like, uh, fuck, I forget the name of the group that they said they were with, but they had come from out of town. They come from fucking Texas to like guard a shell gas station and they were yeah. getting paid to guard it. There's some, all these strange fringe factions come out of the woodwork in these times of injustice. And, um, and a lot of times, yeah, they come from, um, out in the boonies and where there's not nearly as much like metropolitan uh, presence of like, you know, uh, suppressing their voices. So then that's why like they're so prevalent like out in the country. And so like, I've heard there's a lot of uh, like white supremacist alt-right presence in like the UP um, because yeah, there's just not as much like uh 
concentration of like resistance to their ideas. Right. Yeah. And, and it's like in Wisconsin, there's like, you watch the local news and it's just like, it's just like promoting fear of Milwaukee. You know, it's just like all these people that live in the suburbs are like, someone was murdered and look at this scary mugshot and like, Oh, black people in Milwaukee is scary, you know? And then, you know, you got a lot of those people becoming cops and then given a gun and told to patrol the neighborhoods they've been taught to fear their whole life, you know, and they yeah. don't know how to interact with people. And I think, um, right. you know, they're a little, a little scared out there. So, um, yeah, a lot of those cops in the NPD are, don't even live in these neighborhoods. Yeah, they right. live in suburbs for sure. Um, so, um, um, Eric, I'm, so I wanted to, before we run out of time, I did want to talk a little bit more about your photography. And uh, I, I've seen that, you know, you, you, you kind of, um, you focus a lot on architecture as it relates to cultural identity. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about Kind of where that philosophy and and uh, thematic focus sort of originated in your work. Oh, cool! I'm glad uh, you picked up on that, and that it's apparent in the work. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've always loved architecture and built environment and people in their spaces. Like, I always love to visit artists where they work and and where they live. You know, I think you could. There's almost more details in a person by photographing their space and them physically, you know? And so I always try and take a lot of portraits of people in the space that, you know, they, they, you know, reside in or, um, you know, take part in whatever activity. Cause, um, you know, like I was in Milwaukee a couple of weeks ago and I visited, uh, Brema and his like studio on North. And it's like, it's just so cool to see people where they create shit, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah. So, and, and before I was making the blows at the doorstep, I was trying to make a film about the Sydney high building in Milwaukee. Um, I wasn't really like a punk rock person, but like there's like the history of the Sydney high building was so cool. It was built in like the late 1800s and it had such a weird, varied life. Um, you know, the surgeon general of Wisconsin had an, exploratory uh he was doing like uh lab experiments and surgical experiments in his basement and then that building over the years was so many things as a bank but then it became like in the 70s it became kind of the hub of counterculture in milwaukee and it was it was uh, it's an empty parking lot between um the aloft hotel and the modern uh, it's just like this parking lot there now, right by the Buck Stadium. But it was those were like three empty city lots for a long time. It's just like this weird old multicolored building, and it was a bunch of band practice spaces and artist studios in the in the seventies and eighties and nineties. Um, and then there's just like a weird porn bookshop and uh, a Mexican food restaurant run by an, an Iranian guy, and then. Uh, that, that same guy had a, a punk rock club in the basement and like Nirvana came through there smashing pumpkins. And so I was really interested in telling, uh, making a film about um, the importance of space and built environment and community, you know? And so, but I wanted to do it cause that's kind of boring. I don't think people would want to watch that. So I kind of was disguising it with all these like ridiculous, crazy characters 
uh, that inhabited the Sydney High and like through this like punk rock documentary. Um, but I didn't really know what I was doing. It was a total failed project. Like I got some press while I was making it, but after a while, like I was like, dude, I, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Like I made a lot of mistakes along the way, but I, I took a lot of those mistakes and was able to learn from them and in, in, in making the blows at the doorstep. So I'm kind of thankful that I, I went down that route because I wouldn't have been able to do the, the blows at the doorstep. But yeah, for photography, I always try and do environmental portraiture where it's like, someone in their space um and so you know i love i love looking at zillow i whenever like i love the old buildings of the midwest where i grew up it was very suburban and like strip malls and so when i moved to milwaukee just like the old brick buildings was like so cool and the old tin roofs and little bars and stuff like that um so i've always been fascinated by space and making portraits of people and so that's kind of like another project I'm working on now is like, uh, a couple of years ago, probably 2015, 16, 17, I don't know. Um, I played hockey growing up, but I got an assignment from the New York Times. They were doing a series on um, uh, non-professional dance subcultures. And they wanted one of the six episodes that they did, they went all over the world. But one of the six episodes was the roller skating scene in Chicago. And I've never roller skated before. And so I went there and, uh, you know, I played hockey, but never roller skated. And so like we took lessons down there, but it was like a whole thing that I had no idea about. Um, you know, it was like, um, like they'd have adult nights and, uh, it was like, I love to dance and I love to skate. I never roller skated before, but I love to skate in general and I love to dance and they had good ass music. There's no little kids you had to worry about cause it was adults only. And so I was like, dude, I love skating. I love dancing. I love good music. Like I had so much fun. And it was like, you know, I've, I've had my own battles with like anxiety and depression. But when I was like, you know, had a little poof, a couple of drinks and I was on the rink, dude, I was like, I was in a whole other headspace, you know? Um, and uh, it was just so much fun. I felt like free, man. I was like a couple hours of just like, feeling uh, like I was floating and you know basketball is a big important thing for me growing up but it's like as I've gotten older my back hurts and and uh, roller skating is just a little bit more smoother on the joints so um, I got really into it by skates and so you know that's something I've been trying to do now is like I love all the weird architecture and like the time capsuleness of these rinks that were built in like the 60s and 70s it's like nothing has really changed in there architecturally like yeah. the so it's like lately I've been doing a series of making portraits of like friends and um, people at the rink um, kind of in that space because uh, you know, it's, it's so much fun and just the, the those spaces are really interesting and, and weird and cool and all the neon. I love neon. Everyone loves neon. So yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's a project I've been working on lately. Oh, very cool, man. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm also very, um, um, I, I really uh, resonate a lot with that approach because um, I'm also very like fascinated by the sense of place as it relates to time and how places evolve and uh, transform or also kind of the object permanence of the whole thing where sometimes a place can remain so like untouched or still um, especially in like your 
do you ever like visit your childhood home and like where you grew up like what's different and what's the exact same right um i think that that stuff is really cool but especially as it relates to like yeah cultural identity and peoples and uh, um yeah just how um cultures are exchanged in spaces um i think like that's a really powerful thing and uh it sounds like a a really cool project you're working on man yeah thanks dude yeah it's uh another thing I'll, like with the sydney high project i was doing a lot of research uh and it was really fun to go to like the wisconsin historical society or the milwaukee county historical society it's like right kind of in uh downtown ish like old third ward yeah. But uh, I encourage you to go down there and check it out, man, because you could just go in their archives for free and you could look up by address, like historical photos of the streets. And it's such a trip to like, oh, this is what my street used to look like back in it. Like it was so much fun to like look at all the old photos of uh, Milwaukee around 1900 uh, when that building uh, was still pretty new and just see everything that was around it, you know, and uh you know, I, I think that part of Milwaukee was like Bronzeville, which was like a historically black neighborhood that was like somewhat of a black middle class in Milwaukee, which there's not really that kind of a neighborhood now in Milwaukee. Um, but they like totally destroyed that neighborhood and evicted everybody and tore all those businesses down to build that freeway through that part of Milwaukee. And then they never even completed the freeway and then they tore down that extension and then it was three empty lots downtown for decades where the Milwaukee Bucks stadium now is now, but it has like a really just adding to the legacy of, uh, you know, redlining and segregation and yeah. where you had like uh, this thriving black neighborhood, uh, like in the city center and, uh, you're like, Oh no, we, we got to tear this down to build a freeway that we never completed. So yeah, dude, totally. Um, yeah, I, I live not too far from Brownsville now. I'm, I live in River West, like next to Reservoir Park. So mm -hmm. like kind of on the southern end of it. And uh, I go on a lot of walks in like Cottage Park and uh, Reservoir Park, like whenever I, like usually for like daily exercise. And this, I'm sure you've seen like just how much the gentrification has expanded along the river with all these high-end like luxury apartments. They're important conversations to have as, as like you said, like your whole thing is, is how architecture relates to culture and uh, socioeconomic status and socio-political issues and whatnot, so. Um, yeah, I think that's the first time I met you in person was like at that park uh, during uh you know, that Black is Beautiful bike ride. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I thought that was you. Um, <laughs> we were wearing masks. Yeah. So. Yeah. I went up to a couple of people there. I was like, Hey, what's up? And then they gave me like the weirdest look. And then later I realized I was like, Oh, they, I forget. Like people probably didn't know who the fuck I was, you know, yeah. where in uh, Chicago do you live now? Uh, I live, uh, uh, far East Pilsen, like right along the freeway. So just South of downtown, um, so yeah it's like it's good uh in hindsight you know i probably would have stayed a little bit farther north of chicago because i'm still i still go to milwaukee quite a bit and it could be a nightmare having to go through downtown 
So every time I go through Milwaukee, I have to go through downtown Chicago. So it's like, I would have just avoided the whole issue, but I, I love this neighborhood. It's like super chill, you know, it's close to downtown and close to everything, close to the freeway, but it still feels like a neighborhood and low key, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I lived in Walker's Point for most of my time in, in uh, Milwaukee. So it's got a similar vibe. Yeah, for sure. Um... Yeah, my I'm originally from the Chicago area. I'm from the South Suburbs. Like, um, I don't know if you you know of Homewood Flossmore. Okay, but yeah. that, that's that's where I grew up. Um, but yeah, man. I mean, Chicago is definitely uh, it's massive, and uh, there are scenes within scenes. But Pilsen seems like a it's a great like art oriented neighborhood for sure. Right. Yeah, I just went today. Uh, you asked what I did today, and I, uh, I, I forgot to mention is uh, I listened to this podcast, and I've been watching Lovecraft Country and the season finales this weekend. But I was listening to this pod uh, on WBEZ, the local NPR, and they were doing an interview with the art director and production designer, and they were talking about where they were filming, and they uh, like Uncle George's um, bookstore is right on. Uh, they filmed it right on 18th Street, where a lot of the Chicago scenes happen. And so that's right down the street from me. So I went out there and kind of photographed uh, the building that they, they filmed that in, which is pretty sweet. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think Chicago is like the long-term move for me. I yeah. was just like, I'd been in Milwaukee for 11 years and, you know, I was dating someone that moved to Milwaukee and uh, it didn't work out and all my <laughs> shit was in storage. And I was like, dude, I've been here for 10 years. Like if I don't leave now, like I'm never gonna leave. So Chicago really was just like, it was still very close to Milwaukee, but like out of Milwaukee. And it was just like, you know, dipping my toe out of Milwaukee. Um, just because I was like, man, if I, if I don't leave now, like I'm never going to leave ever. Um, and yeah. I don't have any family there really other than the Hamilton family. It's like, I don't have any family anywhere. You know, they're all 2000 miles away. So I was like, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know, you know, where the long-term place is, but, um, yeah, we'll see. I, I feel pretty lucky into being flexible in the type of career I have where I'm on the road most of the time and I'm freelance. So it doesn't really matter where I live so much. Um, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, man. Well, um, yeah. Uh, thanks again, man. Uh, this is, this is, it was fun, but it was also, uh, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed getting to know you better. Um, as we're closing out here, I ask everyone the same two questions. Uh, Eric, what keeps you up at night? Oh, man, what keeps me up at night? I guess, like, you know, dude, I'm 37, and it's like, uh, you know, I think a lot about, um, you know, uh, you know, what, where, what I want to do with my life, you know, it's just like, you know, I've accomplished some things that I, I, I was chasing for a long time, you know, like I, I spent a lot of focus and career and I kind of like, um, I didn't work on building a lot of close relationships with people because I was so focused on what I was trying to do that I kind of like, uh, you know, was selfish at times, you know, I was only concerned with with where I was trying to go and like I let some connections go 
and I just um I was I was dating but not like serious about anything like I was just trying to do career things you know and then um then I accomplished some of those things and I realized like I didn't work on a lot of the skills that I should like the most important thing in life is like love and community and being so far from family for so long I think I deadened some of the love in my heart man so it was just like um now that I've accomplished some of the things that I thought would be fulfilling I realized it feels good and I'm glad I've done the things I've done but it's it's not as fulfilling as I thought it would be and it didn't fill those holes in my heart um like you're not going to fill holes in your heart with money and like career success uh so really like especially during quarantine is like reevaluating my priorities and um especially after like the last relationship I was in you know I just I didn't know how to love the verb you know I I know how I felt about that person but it was really hard for me to actualize and show and make that person feel the appreciation that they deserve because like I was still on the road all the time and concerned about what I was trying to do and not like uh actively working on like conflict resolution or uh you know being flexible when yeah. love isn't perfect you know yeah. uh, I went through something similar myself man it's it can be a uh, difficult to navigate when especially when you you know, you like freelance work and subscribe to the gig economy. Like, you know, some things, life can be very spontaneous. Right. Yeah. So it's like, what keeps you up on that is, uh, you know, am I going to die alone? And B, uh, you know, how can, what can I do to like, okay, I, I made a film and acted on some things in my value system. I don't know that I need to make another film in my life. Like if it comes about, it comes about, but it's like, I feel like I accomplished everything I wanted to, to do. Like, I don't like awards and things like that aren't really like, doesn't do anything for me. Uh, I think the most fulfilling thing of making that project was, was not what I expected it to be, but was really like feeling some of the love that I had missed from being so far from my family as like gaining like a family and making that film, you know? And as like that in my last relationship really made me focused on like more fulfilling than anything was like feeling love towards someone, you know, and, and trying to show that. Um, and, and also it was just like how thinking about like how other ways to give back, um, like, what can I do other than like make a film, but like, how can I be more physically present and community and things that I care about, like going forward. And I still don't have the answers is, you know, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of the career now I'm making a little bit of money, but I don't like own anything yet. So really it's like, you know, what can I do to, you know, enact some of the things I care about in, in different ways, I guess, you know? What puts you to sleep? Oh, I mean, I'm a great sleeper, dude. It's like, I, I have a, a pile of books that I lay, that are next to my bed every night. And uh, I've been much better about reading in the last couple of years, uh, where that was something I always felt really guilty about was I wasn't reading enough. And I realized like reading makes me feel good about myself. So I should just do it more because oftentimes I would do things that made me feel worse about myself all the time. And so like, I uh, just do things that make me feel good about myself. So roller skating and uh, reading books. Um, there you go. 
so it's, it's, uh, but what puts me to sleep is like, I'll have a pile of books next to my bed. And then, you know, I think I'm going to actually do some reading at night and I'll, I'll get like two sentences in and I'll be fast asleep. So, uh, that's good. But, you know, I also like to sleep with the windows open and, and just like have a, a little bit of quiet time and just like think about my day. Um, yeah. Awesome, man. Yeah, man. Um, thank you again for being on the show, dude. Um, you're a, you're a really dope guy and, uh, I admire just sort of like how you perceive yourself in relation to the world around you. Um, and your work reflects in that a lot. So, um, yeah, man. Thanks again. Thanks, dude. I appreciate the, uh, the time to chat. It's good to yeah. talk with you when you actually know who I am this time. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, for everyone watching, uh, I'll be tagging, uh, Eric's, uh, page as well as his website so you can check out his work um thank you for watching mr nice guy as always we'll see you next oh yeah i got one thing too if if, if anybody does want to watch the film it's on amazon and it's coming to hulu november 15th and it's going to be uh, broadcast on revolt tv the night before the election so um oh wow you to check it out coming up so amazing i'll be sure to mention that cool Thanks, man. awesome take care everybody cheers